You can open in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. We'll spend most of our time in the book of Titus this morning. Sure is good to see you all again. It's been a couple of years since I've been with you. Uh, and there's definitely some new new faces, but I'm glad that I get to see all of you that have been here before again and uh, meet some of you that are new. It's a special treat this time because I get to have two of my family with me. My wife had to fly home yesterday, but I have my two boys with me. Uh, and it's always good to be with Brent and April and the kids. And I always appreciate how Brent is really good at vacation. So when he's on, <clears throat> when he's good at va- when he's on vacation, he's on vacation, <clears throat> including having his friend preach for him. So. <clears throat> Have you ever thought about what it would be like if you'd been born in a completely different time, not in the time that you're born in? Maybe centuries ago uh, and never thought about what life would have been like and if you would have been able to handle it uh, or maybe a different place or a time and place I want you to imagine for a minute that God decided to take this group of Christians <clears throat> I mean the ones right now that are meeting in the room which if you think about it probably will never happen again uh, exactly like this with the visitors and the people that are here and the ones that are missing. But if God just took this particular group of people and transported us to a different time and place and put us there and said, be Christians, live here, um, how would you do? Do you suppose there are certain times in history or certain places in the world where life could be a lot more difficult for us than it is here? Uh, Or maybe there would be times where it would be easier, like, Reaching people for the Lord might have come more naturally. Um, I'm somebody that's thought about that and wondered how I would do. But I want you to consider with me this letter that Paul wrote to Titus and what it would have been like to be him or the church that he was preaching for there, uh, or some of the churches that he was preaching for on the island of Crete. Look here in Titus chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses here, but let's start just in verse 12. Verse 12 says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now that is an interesting verse because it's what a Cretan would say about a Cretan. Um, Now, you probably, any of you have ever traveled, you know that other cultures have opinions about Americans, right? We go places and they say, oh, you're an American because you. Uh, But in Crete, the Cretans were just able to say about themselves, this is how we are. We are, and just look at the list again, always liars. How many people do you know that still tell the truth? I know some that tell the truth from time to time. But if the culture was always lying, everybody was dishonest, anything that anybody ever said, you just couldn't trust. I don't know. Maybe you feel like you live that way. I don't know what South Florida is like, but where I live in Minnesota, this is not our culture. People generally are pretty upstanding. Like you can usually trust your neighbors. Um, The next thing on the list there, there, they said they were always liars evil beasts and lazy gluttons. I mean, they were just like animals in some ways. They'd turn and tear each other to pieces. They were unkind. 
Um, they did whatever they wanted to do, ate whatever ever they wanted to eat. They gave in to their passions and their lusts. Um, what would it be like to be a Christian in a culture like that? And again, let me ask, is that how you consider the culture now? Maybe you look around and say, well, this is kind of what it's like. Nobody knows God. Everybody does whatever they want. Uh, people are just looking out for themselves. And because of that, they lack self-control. Uh, and it's hard to know how do we reach them? What do we do with a culture like that? But I'll tell you, I of all the the churches in the New Testament that I read about, I think Titus had one of the roughest situations. Can you imagine being a young preacher and being told, hey, go to this island and you talk to all these people in this culture and try to get the church to be what it's supposed to be? Uh, that would be really complicated for me. Um, <clears throat> I want to look a little bit closer at the context, though. Go back to verse 10. Because if, if verse 12 describes like the outside of the church culture, I think verse 10 describes what might have been going on among the Christians. Verse 10 says, <clears throat> For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. <clears throat> Look again at verse 10. And I, I not, I'm not familiar enough with this congregation to know the history. But have you ever had somebody in the church here that was rebellious? <clears throat> and what I mean by that is, no matter what anybody tried to say to them, they were just going to live their life the way they wanted, kind of in your face. They knew, or you knew they knew that what they were doing was wrong, but they were just going to do it anyway. And it didn't matter how you tried to discipline them or influence them, they were just being rebellious. <clears throat> is that a difficult situation for a church? Absolutely. So imagine this was our story. This is where we were transported. Look at the next thing in verse 10. People who were empty talkers and deceivers. That's, you ever sat in a Bible class uh, and had somebody that just kept talking and they weren't saying anything. They just kind of kept talking. They like to hear themselves talk. But what if somebody was always trying to be deceptive, always trying to say something that just wasn't so and be subversive? That gets really complicated very fast. Um, it says also in verse 11 there that they were upsetting whole families. Have you ever had somebody in a church that was actually causing trouble, you know, among the families in the church? What are you going to do about that? How do we handle that? Like what, what would be God's prescription to deal with a culture like Crete and be involved with people who were religious that were doing these kinds of things? So, focus your attention now on verse 13. <clears throat> when Paul says, this testimony is true, by the way, I think that's funny, don't you? Uh, when I was a teenager, I had a friend who got into a conversation with a, a really smart, young atheist. And one of the things he was telling us was, the Bible's filled with paradoxes, it's filled with contradictions, and so you can't trust it. And so we finally pressed that guy to give us one of the Bible contradictions. And he said, Titus 1, uh, 1, um, 
12. Look at Titus 1.12 again. This was his argument. One of themselves said, Cretans are always liars. So, if a Cretan said, Cretans are always liars, can you trust them? And if you can trust them, then are all Cretans liars? He thought he was brilliant, by the way. Like, and us teenagers kind of looked at it and scratched our heads and thought about it. And finally, it dawned on me, look at the next verse. What did Paul have to say in verse 13? This testimony is what? Truth. Paul knew it was a contradiction, but he went, that was like the one time a Cretan told the truth, is when he said they were all liars. All right, so verse 13, when Paul says to Titus, look, this is the way it is where you are. He says, for this reason, reprove them severely. What do you think of that instruction? To reprove somebody severely. Have you ever had to do that? Maybe in your own family, but have you ever had to do that in the church? Again, I don't know the history of this congregation, but going back in history, has that ever had to take place here, do you think? Where somebody was upsetting families, somebody was being rebellious, somebody wouldn't get their life right, and and what was needed in order for God's people to be okay was for somebody to have the courage to stand up and say, stop, don't do that anymore. Whether that was to their face, or whether it had to get to the point where it had to be done from the pulpit. I've been a number of places in my life where churches lack that courage. Where there's just sort of this sweep it under the rug mentality. And there's people going around causing all kinds of harm, but nobody will step up to say, stop, this isn't right. We've got to care more about God's things than this. And Paul puts this on young, Tim, on, on young Titus, that this needs to take place. Um, now, keep reading there in verse 13. It says, Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Now notice some of the descriptions in 15 and 16, you've got these people with impure minds, they're defiled, they're unbelieving, and the way, the way the Bible describes them is they're just disobedient people. Disobedient to God, disobedient to the truth. But here's the ironic thing, maybe it's not ironic, but it's interesting. They're not disobedient to everything. Look back at verse uh, 14. What does it say that these people pay attention to? They pay attention to myths and commandments of what? Myth. Now, some of the people who cause the most trouble in churches are not disobedient to everything. What they're disobedient to is the truth of God, but what they will listen to is what the commandments of men have always said. You ever met them? I mean, they grew up hearing, this is the way it is. Mom and dad did this. Grandma did this. My preacher used to say this. And so they're obedient to that teaching. So it's not like they're subversive to everything. They honor who they want to honor, but they're disobedient to the truth. Now, again, just put all that together. Everything we just read. God takes this church, sticks us in Crete with this kind of nonsense going on. How are we going to do? What are you going to do? 
Let me tell you what my temptation would be. I think I'd just get discouraged. I think I would just maybe want to quit. I might just want to show up, maybe do my thing at worship and kind of sneak out and not have to deal with the nonsense or the chaos. Living in the difficult surroundings I was in, maybe just kind of keep my head down. But for people that love God and love the people that they're around, you know that that's not good enough. What are we going to do in a culture like that? Now, let me tell you why I think this is important. You may go to work every day and feel like you live in Crete. Like everybody in the company, everybody around you is lying and looking out for number one. You're not sure how you're going to get through to a culture like that. Maybe your family feels like that, your neighborhood. I don't know what the story is, but I want you to know that Paul wrote a letter, not just to a young man, but to a church that lived in a time like that, in a place like that. And he had a prescription for how they could change the culture, how they could reach people for the Lord. What did he teach them? Let's spend the rest of our time looking at a few things in this letter together. Um, Now, I mentioned this a minute ago in verse uh, 13, when he says that we need to reprove some people severely. Somebody might say, well, are you sure that he means that? You know, that sounds awfully harsh. Is that really what Paul would want done in a culture like this? where everybody was so sensitive. Go to chapter 3 and look at verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9, Paul wrote this to Titus, But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, Being self-condemned. Let me tell you what's hard about those three verses to me. You see back in verse 9 where it says avoid strife and disputes. But then in verse 11 it says, or verse uh, 10 it says reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Do you think that can take place? A first and second warning and then rejecting somebody without strife and dispute? So how do those things coexist? Look at the way it's written. Don't have fights about the law. Don't fight about things that aren't worth fighting about, like genealogies and all this stuff that people talk about. But what is worth fighting for are the souls of men. And if somebody is dividing the body of Christ and causing trouble, that's the time to be courageous and say something. So this book, this letter is bookended with this idea of this kind of courage. All right, let me show you what I think is really going on in the book of Titus. Um, This is something that occurred to me a number of years ago. A church asked me to preach on uh, the, the title of the lesson they wanted me to do was being conscious of opportunities for good works in the marketplace. It's a ridiculous title. Um, Being conscious of opportunities for good works in the marketplace. And I didn't really know what they meant, and so I asked them what they meant, and they didn't really know what they meant. Um, So I just started doing a Bible study on good works. And I used to think that the book you would go to to talk about good work was the book of James, right? Uh, Faith without works is dead, James would say. And he would talk about working. And when people think of good works, they usually go to a place like that. 
what I finally decided in that study, though, is that the book that Paul wrote here, this letter to Titus, this is really the book of good works, the book of good deeds. Let me show you. And by the way, this is the evangelistic plan in Crete is to do good works for a certain reason with a certain demeanor. Um, Let's start at the end and go backwards. So go to the end of the book, look at chapter three and let's notice verse 14, just the language of verse 14. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. Now, folks, there's a lot said in that verse. Uh, First, notice this. Anytime you see a so that statement in a book or in the Bible, it's worth paying attention to. Paul sometimes will speak for a long time and he'll write for a long time and then he'll give you a so that. Like everything I just said is for this reason. Now look at the so that in that verse. So that they will not be unfruitful. Have you ever met a group of unfruitful Christians? You ever seen that church? Like they just never bear fruit. You never see it. Why is that? Well, let me tell you what I might have used to have said. Well, we can't bear any fruit in this environment because the soil's no good. I mean, there's nothing around here to harvest. Like nothing's happening here. We live in Crete. Everybody lies. Everybody's an evil beast. Everybody's a lazy glutton. How could we possibly bear fruit in a culture like this? Now read the verse again. Our people must learn. This isn't going to happen by accident. It's it's a process of education that I learn to what? Engage in good deeds meet pressing needs so that I won't be unfruitful. There's a promise in this verse that if every one of the Christians in this room will learn, and maybe this is the hardest word in the verse, to engage. Is that a hard word for you? Engage. I'm somebody who likes to step back and let other people do things. I'm the guy that doesn't always want in the community I live in to jump in and get my hands dirty. But here, what these Christians were being told is you've got to learn to engage in good deeds and look around and see if there's some need that needs to be met and meet the pressing need. And the promise is if you'll do that, fruit will come. That's God's plan. Now go backwards in the text and watch how this sort of was unfolding through the whole letter. Go back to chapter three, verse eight. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So the end of the text says we must learn to engage in good deeds. But here, what does this teach? That we must be careful to engage in good deeds. Is that a warning? Like, oh, hey, be careful. No, I like this word careful. It's not the way we use it in the English very often. But it literally means full of care. Like it's what you care about. It's what you're interested in. If I ask your friends, what is so-and-so full of care about? How would they answer that? Well, they really care about their grandkids. I mean, they really care about their family. They really care about what? What are they full of care about? 
Now look at the instruction to the Christians. You've got to be careful, full of care to engage in good deeds. Why? What's the rest of the verse say? These things are good and profitable for men. By the way, that doesn't mean you, good deed doer. If you go back up a few verses, you're going to be told that you're not saved based on the good deeds that you do. The prophet's not going to be, oh, hey, God, I did all these good deeds. You saved me. The point that Paul's making is these are good and profitable for the people out there in Crete for you to engage in good deeds. All right. Keep going backwards. Look at chapter three, verse one. Chapter three, one says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be. Now, what's the phrase? Ready. For every good deed. So at the end of the book, we must learn to engage. Back up a few verses. We've got to be careful to engage. But now this instruction is to be ready for every good deed. This is a tough one for me. You know why? I'm not much of a planner. Like, I'm not much on uh, thinking ahead. I'm kind of a live in the moment sort of guy. And you know what that means? Is that I'm not always ready to do something good. Up there in Minnesota, it's as simple as this. When people who are thoughtful think about the culture and the way we live up there and want to be helpful, they put some things in the trunk of their car, like a tow rope, like uh, things that get people out of snow and ice. And then when they're driving down the freeway and somebody spun off into the ditch, they can stop and help. You know why? Because they were ready for a good deed. Now think about that on all kinds of levels. Do you all know who those people are in this room? The woman who thinks ahead and thinks, okay, I want to have my pantry, my, my, my freezer, my situation at home ready so that if somebody shows up here visiting or if somebody needs something, I can say, hey, just come to my place. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. I got a room and bed ready. Christians who understand the power of this are ready for good deeds. Some of you do this with your bank accounts. As you begin to think about what you do with your money, you put some of it aside, not just for the collection and for the Lord, but actually just to help people. So when the time comes, you can say, hey, I can meet that need. I can meet that pressing need. The instruction of scripture for these Cretan Christians was this. Be ready for it. Now go back a few verses to chapter 2, verse 14. 2.14. But this is right in the middle of a sentence about Jesus. Um, So actually, let's go ahead and read the, the whole thought. Go back to verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Now here's the phrase. Zealous for good deeds. Alright, going backwards. We must be, we must learn to engage in good deeds. That's 3.14. Then 3.8 tells us to be careful to engage in good deeds. 3.1 tells us to be ready for every good deed. But chapter 2 verse 14 tells us to be what? Zealous for good deeds. Zealous is an interesting word. Uh, In the Greek especially, it's an onomatopoeia. And I just like to say that. 
Remember English class? Remember what an onomatopoeia is? It's a word that sounds like the word you're trying to describe. So buzz, buzz, buzz sounds like the word you're trying to describe. Batman, the old 50s, Batman, 60s, whatever that was. Bang, pow, smash. Those were onomatopoeias. Zealous is like that. In the Greek, it was something like like bubbling, boiling fervency of a pot on a stove. Just boiling up. That's why sometimes that word and the word jealousy are very similar. It's that sort of feeling you get inside. But instead of it being a feeling of jealousy for what somebody else has or what somebody else gains, it's a feeling of, I just can't wait to do this. Let me challenge you for a minute. When was the last time you felt like that about good deeds? I mean, you just, you're just like looking for it and excited about it. Couldn't wait. Especially when you lived in a culture like Crete. I mean, at work or in a place where everybody was so selfish and unkind and mean. Were you zealous to do the good thing and like help somebody? Or did you get more excited about getting back at them? You know, this is a really hard teaching. Something I want to point out to you as we're doing this. Nothing in the letter to Titus described how to preach the gospel. It wasn't like, hey guys, here's the evangelistic plan. You figure out five lessons that you can knock on your neighbor's door and teach them X, Y, and Z. And if you do that, you're going to win the crowd. What's being done here in the book of Titus is telling Christians how to live out their salvation in front of people. The grace of God's appeared saving us, and there's a way for us to behave in a culture that will turn heads and change hearts and change minds. And it has everything to do with good deeds. Why? Go back a a few verses earlier, look at verse 7 of chapter 2. And this is in a statement to young men. Verse 6 says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds. You know what people desperately needed in Crete? They needed to see what it looked like for somebody to tell the truth. To not be an evil beast. And to show self-control and not be a lazy glutton. What they needed to see was somebody different than they'd ever seen before. In fact, I'm not going to talk much about this, but the way the letter to Titus starts, we normally go to Titus to talk about the qualification of what? Elders. Why, why was this a concern? Like, why did Paul want Titus going to every city in Crete and establishing elders? You know why? Because there was all kinds of wrong examples of what it looked like to be a man and be a leader. And you needed to take something countercultural, somebody who knew how to raise their kids and do the right things and be a man the way God wanted them and put them into positions where people could look at them and see something different. But this is the calling to all Christians. Now, why is this such a concern? Example of good deeds, zealous for good deeds, ready for good deeds, engaged in good deeds, learning how to do those good deeds. Here's the reason. Look at chapter 1, verse 16. 1, 16 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they, what? Deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed, 
Now, folks, there's something about this verse that's really hard for me to understand. Look at that last phrase. The very last phrase in verse 16 says, they're worthless for any good deed. Do you think that Paul meant by that, that these people he was describing could never do a good deed ever? Like they were completely worthless to ever do a good deed. Do you think that's what he meant? You ever seen, maybe on TV, uh, somebody who was just awful and terrible and maybe they were in prison and they were being interviewed? I mean, and they just, hatred just like oozed out of them. And you, and you thought they could never, they could never love anybody. They could never do anything right. And then all of a sudden that criminal started talking about their mom. Do you think that person could do a good deed for her? Like, did they have one good deed in them? What does a phrase like this mean? That somebody could be worthless for any good deed. Let me tell you what I think it means. You see, in the teaching of the New Testament, our good deeds don't buy us heaven. We're not saved by them. That's not Paul's point here at all in this letter. The point of good deeds in the life of a Christian is to bring glory to God. Do you know what will make somebody worthless for any good deed? Look at the verse again. They talk about God. They they describe God as somebody they know. Hey, I'm a Christian. I know God. I love God. But by their deeds, they do what? They make it clear they don't really belong to God. Now, what does that do? If somebody's like that, that kind of hypocrisy, it makes them detestable, disobedient. And here's the phrase, worthless for any good deed. So go do a good deed now. I mean, where you work, you've been lying and mean and unkind and you get angry and you can't control yourself. And then one day you decide, ah, I think I'll spring for lunch. And you buy him a meal and everybody goes, they're amazing. No, they don't. They think that's a weird thing he did today. Is this a problem in the world? Is this a problem in the religious world? People who profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. And because of this, it doesn't matter that they do some good things. It doesn't really bring anybody to the Lord. Here is what Paul is saying to us. If we lived in Crete, you get these two things right. Tell people who you belong to. You profess to know God. If we confess God, if we confess the Lord before men, He'll confess us. But here's the danger of that. Whenever you confess the Lord, now you're on display. People are looking at you. By the way, that's why some of you don't confess Him. You know that at work, if you say you're a Christian, people are going to be looking at you under a microscope. That's right. So we avoid it. You can't avoid it. You see, there's, there's actually sort of two sides of this coin that we can mess up. I think I've told this story here before, but it's worth telling again. Before I became a preacher, I worked in San Diego, California at a capital money management firm. And uh, I wanted to be this kind of person in the company. I wanted to do good deeds, be nice to everybody. Like I wanted to show everybody what it was like to be the light of the world. And so I did for as long as I was there. When I decided to leave and go be a preacher, word got around the office that I was leaving. And people were making all kinds of jokes and saying stuff to me about it. But I'll never forget, like the last day I was there, I think God did this to me on purpose. I was on the elevator with a guy named Craig. And Craig said, hey, Andy, I hear you're leaving to be a preacher. And I kind of like 
That's right. And he said these words to me. He said, you know, I always knew you were a really good guy. But I never knew you were a Christian. You know what I had done? I'd done all kinds of good deeds. But the only person that ever looked good was me. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do. Jesus said, do your good deeds in such a way that they see your good deeds and glorify, not you, but your Father. And the the only way that happens is if we live lives of confession. But here's the issue. Here's the issue. Some people don't confess. I wasn't not confessing in my company because I was ashamed. That wasn't my problem. I think I was not confessing because I was afraid that that would sound too religious or something. Like maybe I draw too much attention. Shame on me. I don't care what people think. I do what I do and I am who I am because of the Lord. And I need to learn to talk like that. But I'll tell you, some Christians don't confess because they don't want people looking at them. You know why? Because they're not ready for good deeds or zealous for good deeds or engaged in good deeds. And by their deeds, they're actually denying God. So I'll say it this way. Confession without good deeds or confession with bad behavior is hypocrisy. Good deeds without confession is self-promotion. And neither of those things work. Now, for the last few minutes of our lesson, I want you to notice in chapter 2 that Paul gets even more specific here. He doesn't just tell the church, hey, be good deed doers. He gets very specific to talk to four groups, actually five groups of people. Uh, Older men, older women, younger women, and younger men. By the way, nobody gets out of this lesson alive because you're one of those things. I don't care what you say, you're one of those things. Uh, I want you to just see what Paul says to each group. Uh, Starting in verse 1. He says, Titus, as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. All right, old men, you guys ready? I've always wanted to do this. I'm not going to make you stand up. Um, But I'm also going to not decide which of you is old. Brent. This is, like, what is the level? Either, either way, if you're a young man, this is where you're headed. So be a paying attention. Look at the list again. Older men, be, what's the first word? My version uses the word temperate. Yours might say sober. Uh, it might have some sort of description of self-control. Um, I like the word temperate. Have you ever met an older man... Who didn't have control of his temper. I mean it was really easy for him to get angry. On the road when they were driving. Somebody cut him off. Something wasn't going the way it should. And he just lost it. That's exactly the wrong thing. That's exactly what God says don't be like. That's kind of like being an animal. Like a lazy or an evil beast. Like the Cretans. Just lashing out you know. Trapped in a corner. Older men are to get to this place in their life where they are temperate. They're even. They don't get rattled like they used to. And if you'll do that, you might have an impact. 
Look at the next word for them. Dignified. Some versions say grave or reverent. Um, grave is a weird word, doesn't it? It sounds like they're dead. Uh, and, and actually, sometimes when people think of this word of being dignified or grave or reverent or whatever, you think boring, so serious that they're boring. No, that's not the idea here. That doesn't mean you can't crack a smile. It doesn't mean you have to be stoic. But do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I have two young boys. <clears throat> there, I will not point at any man in our congregation and say, be like them. I won't do that. But there are some that I will. And I guarantee you, everyone that I would point at and say, boys, look at them. Be like them. A word that would describe them is dignified. Dignity. That's what they've worked on in their life. There's somebody to be respected because of how they think and how they behave. And if I'm constantly having to say, uh, uh, don't look, look, that was the wrong thing. Older men, that's not what ought to be. What's the next thing on the list? Sensible. You know, sensible and dignified, that first, or sensible and temperate are very similar words. And that, by the way, that word for sobriety or sensibility, it's, it's every one of the groups is told to be this way. This idea of sobriety and sensibility, having control of your senses, not your senses having control of you. Everybody's told this. But think about why that's so culturally important. Everybody lives for their senses. Uh, And this idea of being sensible or self, um, sort of self-controlled or to live wisely, your version might say. It involves like what happens when you wake up in the morning. Do you lay around and stay lazy? Uh, Are you paying attention to what's important in the world? Um, Christians are called upon to be sober, sensible about that. The final thing for older men there is sort of a triplet list. Sound in faith, love, and what? Perseverance or patience. Uh, I want to ask you, older men, would people say that you were sound, solid, secure in your faith when trials come your way, uh, when the government's falling apart, when uh, finances get tight? Do people see you panic or do people see you say, no, God's got this. God's in control. What about love? Sound in love. Don't. Don't brush by that. Would people say that you're sound in your love only for your grandkids? Oh yeah, they're everything. But everybody else's kids? Get out of my face, kid. Like, you're annoying. Uh, there, there are way too many old men that are partial in their love. That have decided who their favorites are. And if you don't line up with them politically or... Some places, even if you don't have the right sports team, it's nonsense. No, you be sound in your love. And what's the last one? Perseverance, patience. I mean, that's little things like when you're working on a car and you're trying to use the tools and it's not working right, you know? And you wrap your knuckles on something and you throw the wrench across the garage and you lose your mind and you... You're not sound in perseverance and patience. Stick with it. Stay with it. Calm down, old men. 
<clears throat> By the way, I'm getting old. <laughs> All right, older women. Verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior. Some versions say, uh, becometh holiness. Live in a way that honors God. How you dress, how you talk, how you carry yourself. That people would see you and say, that's somebody who puts God first in every way. It says also that they were not to be malicious gossips. Older women, I have a question. Why are older women the only ones told not to do that? Like, it didn't say that to the men. It doesn't say that to the young women. It doesn't say that to the young men. Why older women? Anybody got an idea? It's because that's what old women do. I'm not trying to be mean. But I had a grandma who, when I'd visit, she would just talk and talk and talk about everybody. And it wasn't always nice. Bless their heart. I mean, she's the sweetest old lady. She's gone now. But I knew everything about every neighbor and everybody in the family. Stuff I shouldn't have known. Because she's just talking all the time. By the way, that word there for gossip, that's a scary word. You ever looked at it in the Greek? I want to show you really quick that where that what the way that word is usually translated. Go back just a couple of pages in your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 3. <clears throat> Look at verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips. You see that? Same thing. Um You're told not to be gossips in Titus. You're told not to be gossips here. But go back up a few verses to verse 7. This is in the list of qualifications of elders. And it says, He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, if I told you that the Greek word for gossip was in there, what word would you say it was? What? No. What in verse seven? What word do you think is the same word as the word gossip? Devil. Do you know that? Almost every time that word is translated in the Bible, thirty some times it's devil. Except every once in a while, it's gossip. Now, just chew on that for a little while. Next time you're talking about somebody. All right, older women. Sorry. Let's keep going on the list. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. And the lady says, well, I'm not enslaved to much wine, just a little. Now, this is the same idea of the sobriety thing. I mean, we're running around in a world, folks, where just about everybody is in a daze. Do you agree? I mean, right now there's people that are drunk around town. They're doing something, some substance in them, whether it's chemical or whether it's just mental there is a call for Christians to be sober and to have their eyes wide open. And women, you keep on that. Keeps going there to the older women. Teaching what is good. This is going to be a hard thing. And I, again, it's nice to be in a place where I don't know everybody or what's going on. 
But nearly every church I've ever been a part of, what we needed most was older women who would be teachers. Older women who would understand how important it was for the younger women to to have somebody to spend time with and learn some things from. That knew they had a responsibility to get to that place in their life where they could sit across the table or take somebody out to coffee or lead a class. Whatever it was, this was important for women to know. All right, younger women, we're finishing up here. You've got a list. Younger men, uh, you've got a list. And then somebody says, well, a lot of these instructions are for married people. Well, then put yourself in the bond slave category down there in verse 9. You know, whatever situation you find yourself in life, take these instructions seriously. Sit down and learn the words and, and put down on a piece of paper what they mean and what they look like. And then back up and remember why. Look at what Paul says. We'll finish with this to the bond slaves in verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God in every respect. I love that phrase. Adorn the doctrine. It's like wearing a billboard. It's like putting on clothes. You don't have to have all the right words, folks, to be evangelistic in South Florida. You don't have to know every scripture to take somebody to. But you know what you do have to do? Is be different. Live the way that God calls you to live so that you can, by your good deeds and by your confession, show people what it means. And if you will learn to do this, the promise is we will not be unfruitful. I appreciate your attention in this study. Uh, We'll stop there. And we'll talk about some more things in the next hour.